Let's open our Bibles to Mark chapter six. Mark chapter six. We go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through books of the Bible. We're in Mark chapter six. We're gonna look at verses 30 through 44. So uh, turn in your Bible, navigate on your uh, device. If you wanna follow along with the uh, teaching, you can go to transcript.calvaryhanford.com and uh, find the uh, transcript of the message there. So Mark chapter six, verse 30 through 44, the topic, Jesus feeds the 5,000 and he gives his followers a lesson in what it means to live life moved with compassion. The title of our message, Compassionistas. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we appreciate the opportunity to be here this morning and sit under the teaching of the Holy Spirit who takes these words that were inspired and brings them to life in our hearts. Bless this time. May we draw closer to Jesus Christ and see him more clearly. In Jesus' name we pray, and those who agreed said, amen. You may be among those who have chosen your word for 2016. For those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, in a twist on the classic New Year's resolution, it's being suggested that you choose a single word as either a goal to achieve or a guide for your life for 2016. So is there a single word that captures what you would like to manifest in yourself or in your life in 2016? If you can't think of a word, maybe help should be your word. Whether you've already chosen your word or not, or whether you think this is what Chuck Smith would call a bunch of hooey, I have a word to suggest, one that would be applicable to us all. It's a great word, and it is the word compassion. It's a great word for a Christian because it was so characteristic of Jesus. Charles Spurgeon said this. The quote's a little bit long, but it's a, it's a good one. He was moved with compassion is said of Jesus several times in the New Testament. The original word is a very remarkable one. It's not found in classic Greek. It's not found in the Septuagint version of the Bible. The fact is, it was a word coined by the evangelists themselves. They did not find one in the whole Greek language that suited their purpose, and therefore they had to make one. It is expressive of the deepest emotion, a striving of the bowels, a yearning of the innermost nature with pity. I suppose that when our Savior looked upon certain sights, those who watched him closely perceived that his internal agitation was very great, his emotions were very deep, and then his face betrayed it. His eyes gushed like founts with tears, and you saw that his big heart was ready to burst with pity for the sorrow upon which his eyes were gazing. He was moved with compassion. His whole nature was agitated with commiseration for the sufferers before him. Now, although this word is not used many times, even by the evangelist, yet it may be taken as a clue to the Savior's whole life. If you would sum up the whole character of Jesus in reference to ourselves, it might be gathered into this one sentence, he was moved with compassion. Here's another way to stress the word. In the game Password, you give your partner a one-word clue to the word that you're trying to guess. If you were playing Bible Password, compassion should always elicit the word Jesus. Since Christian means Christ-like, you know where we're headed with this, compassion should characterize us as well. And so I'll organize my thoughts around two points this morning. Number one, when you look at Jesus, you see compassion. So number two, when people look at you, they should see compassion. 
Verses 30 through 34, let's take a look at Jesus. Now, I initially thought, and maybe some of you do too, that the Spurgeon quote had gone too far. There must be other words that better characterize Jesus. But as I thought about it, I had to agree the compassion, if not the best word, is at least in the top three. Jesus Christ had pity mankind and had compassion on us from eternity past. He was moved with compassion to come as a man to resolve the issue of our sin by dying on the cross. In that sense, compassion includes and is the motivation for all of his work on our behalf. Compassion is the main heading under which you could put his incarnation, his perfect life, his substitutionary atonement, his resurrection, his ascension, uh, his second coming, and every other good word and work of his on our behalf. It was all motivated by compassion. Now, saving us was not some mechanical theological assignment for Jesus. He was deeply moved to do it. And so we're picking up the story in chapter six as the 12 disciples of Jesus return from having been sent out two by two with the gospel, healing the sick and delivering folks from demons. And so in verse 30, then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. We would call this today a debriefing. We need to be more prone to and more open to an analysis of our walk with the Lord and of the ministry that we perform for him. What worked? What didn't work? Where did we follow the leading of the Holy Spirit? Where did our flesh get in the way? What was the fruit? We need to be less sensitive to critiquing and more serious about our commission. Now, I'm not talking about criticism. Talking about a genuine critique, evaluating with the Bible open and hearts filled with the Holy Spirit. And everybody says, oh yeah, that's a good idea, but nobody likes to do this because we're a lot more sensitive than we think, especially guys. Can I talk to you guys for just a minute? Guys always say, go ahead and just tell me straight, I can take it. Anybody that says that can't take it. Over the years, as a pastor, I have to tell the truth, it's an occupational hazard. And so people will want my opinion about things in and, and their life, and I'll tell them, and they get mad at me. Amen. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> and uh, it, it just happens that way. So we really need to be open to debriefing because we're serious about the ministry. We want people to come to know Christ or know more about Christ. And we do a lot of that here on the, the staff and the guys that teach and, and various individuals in leadership. We do a lot of debriefing. And hey, just hey, that didn't work. Or you should have been over here, or you, you were, you know, this or that or the other thing. And it's good, it sharpens us. And so be open to that. At least ask the Lord to evaluate you. Um, build up to asking your wife. Well, if you want honesty. Uh, anyway. This is the first use by Mark of the word apostles. We sometimes say that there were apostles with a capital A and apostles with a lowercase a. The first century capital A apostle met the requirements set out by Peter in the book of Acts when he said they must be, quote, men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us. 
They were getting ready to choose an apostle to take the place of Judas. And Peter said, that guy has to meet this requirement. And this is why there cannot be any capital A apostles anymore. Because no one alive can meet the requirement that Peter set down. Apostles with a lowercase a simply means messenger or ambassador. And in that sense, you could say, well, every Christian is an apostle. In fact, a book was written a few years ago. I think it's a pretty good book. The author's a good guy. But it's about how we are the apostles of the Lord. But he spends like the first chapter to explaining how we're not really like the apostles' apostles with the capital A, but we're all apostles in the sense that we're sent out and missionaries and those kinds of things. So it's a little clever thing to try and sell books. Uh, but uh, So we are all apostles, but we don't really use that word because it has the connotation of a particular individual in the first century. So uh, we prefer messenger, ambassador, missionary, those kinds of things. But these are the 12 apostles of the Lord and they report back to him. And he said to them in verse 31, come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while for there were many coming and going and they did not even have time to eat. Now I can't blame the people for not leaving them alone. I mean, if there was any chance that you could be healed or delivered from a demon, you've got to go for it. I mean, I know that the apostles were stressed out and busy and hadn't had time to eat, but I mean, from my individual point of view, am I going to get rid of this demon today or am I going to let them have lunch? And you've got to go for it because you don't know how long Jesus is going to be in a certain area. And so the people kept pressing and pressing. So Jesus invited his guys to go on an apostles retreat. Imagine the flyer. Come, rest, and eat with your very special guest speaker, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Hey, sign me up. That sounds like a great weekend, except it's going to turn out to be a working retreat, something that I don't think anybody was really ready for, but it turns out to be a really wonderful thing. I know we need rest, but as the saying goes, there will be plenty of time for resting when you're dead. You ever use that? Plenty of time for resting when you're dead. Now is a time to work and to not get weary in well-doing. Now, let me be clear. I'm not against R&R, but it can't always be counted on. Ministry happens on God's timetable, not ours. You can't always block out time and, and ignore something that's going on. And that was the situation with these apostles, as we'll see in a minute. When they got to where they were going, there was more ministry that they had to attend to. And they didn't just say, hey, Sorry about you demon-possessed ill people. We're going to have some nachos right now. Uh, and, and so they, they ministered. Verse 32 say, They departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. The first recorded Christian ministry cruise right here. You see those advertised all the time. Cruises with your favorite Bible teacher. Marriage cruises, uh, you know. And um, only this cruise that the apostles were on was in a smelly fishing boat with no accommodations and they weren't headed to the Mexican Riviera but it says to a deserted place. And so verse 33, but the multitude saw them departing and many knew him and ran there on foot from all the cities and they arrived before them and came together to him. 
Now, usually the shortest route is a straight line, and probably that's the route that the boat was taking. But in this case, the people were able to run along the shoreline, keeping the good ship Jesus in their sight, and thus beating him to the landing. And people who have studied this and know the geography suggest that somehow the wind must have been contrary to them at that time for the people to have beaten them to the landing. And so we're starting to sense kind of a divine moment here where God the Father is keeping this boat from getting there too quickly. Now I wanna think about this crowd for a moment. The people who were coming to Jesus, at least the majority of them, were ill, infirm, and afflicted. Many must have been advanced in age, having problems walking. Jesus and his guys could see them from the boat. That was the view from their stateroom. Not a glacier or dolphins or whales, but a bunch of infirm, crippled people rushing to get to the landing site. It was a pathetic sight. Lame men and women doing their best to run to Jesus, probably tripping over one another, pushing each other and falling. You know human nature. People would be carrying their friends and their family, doing their best to get to Jesus and to be at the head of the line. Some of you, for reasons that escape me, watch the PBS hit series Downton Abbey. One of its main characters, John Bates, walks with a limp. Comedian Jimmy Fallon parodies Downton Abbey, and in his version, Bates has an incredibly heavy iron prosthetic, and it takes him like five minutes to drag his foot along the floor. He has a, in one scene, he has a telegram for the master, and he says, I'll come get it. No, I'll bring it. And he drags it just, it's hilarious as a, as a parody, but not in real life. Seeing a multitude of people dragging themselves or being carried along or limping to see Jesus ought to evoke a response that is far from humor. There's really only one proper spiritual response, and here it comes in verse 34. Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep, not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. Mark's perspective is that Jesus is the one true shepherd of the human race. We are all like sheep who have gone astray. Most commentators say that Peter provided Mark with the source material for his gospel. Mark wasn't around, but Peter was, and he was talking about this incident. And so you can see that here because Peter once said of Jesus in his epistle, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And so Peter liked to refer to Jesus as the great shepherd, and he passed that down to his son in the faith, Mark. And so Mark is seeing this as one example of what Peter meant uh, in terms of his care for this group of people. Now Mark emphasized that Jesus began to teach them many things. The greatest need the multitude had was the message Jesus went about proclaiming, which was repentance from sin and faith in him. The greatest need a person has is always spiritual. Keep that in mind as you determine if and when and how to meet other physical needs. The greatest need is always spiritual. It may not seem like it at the time because of the situation a person is in. And you might have to meet some physical needs first, but never lose sight of the fact that the greatest need is obviously the spiritual transformation of a heart 
and the forgiveness of sins and the reception of eternal life through Jesus Christ. Now, all of us from time to time have been especially moved by some awareness of the tragedy of the human condition all around us. Maybe you're watching television and suddenly one of those ads airs that show the terrible plight of third world children. You're moved by it, deeply affected, and maybe you even act upon that compassion by sending support. Jesus was moved like that only in a much deeper way all the time from the beginning of time. That's something to really meditate on. Jesus didn't have moments of compassion like you and I do. He was constantly moved with compassion because he had on his heart the entire human race that he had agreed to save by coming and dying on the cross. And so I'm suggesting to you, and I don't think it's far-fetched, that there was never a time Jesus was not moved with compassion as he moved towards that event. And the Bible indicates that he still moved with compassion towards us as he prays for us and ministers to us. With his insight to the human race and his hindsight and his foresight, he saw the greatest need in each heart and he wanted to and he wants to meet that need. And by the way, He sees your need right now. No one else might know what you're going through this morning. Your spouse might not even know some hurt or some pain that you're carrying with you, but you know who knows that? Jesus Christ does, and he is moved with compassion. You might not always get a hug. You might not always get somebody to cry with you. You might not have anybody to even go to, but the Lord Jesus Christ, his very bowels are moved with compassion for you. His eyes would well with tears. He would reach out and touch you. He would lift your head, your downcast head, so that you could look into his beautiful face and know what he has done on your behalf. Don't discount the great generosity he's already given to you in saving you. You have a hope and you have a future and it's a a great hope and a great future in heaven where he's preparing a place for you. No one can promise you that your earthly lot is going to change or that it's going to get any better. It may actually get worse, but the Lord will be waiting for you and he has prepared a grand entrance for you into glory. Now in verses 35 through 44, when people look at you, they should see compassion. Don't worry, I'm not gonna beat us up too bad because I'm part of this. Jesus was taking his guys on a retreat for a little well-deserved and much-needed R&R. Compassion dictated a change of plans. I like that sentence, I underlined it in my notes. Compassion dictates a change of plans. That's something that compassion always does. It can be a change of plans for a few minutes or for a day. It can be a change of plans for the rest of your life. You read stories of individuals who've gone into the mission field or full-time ministry of some kind where they've been going along in a career or on a certain path and then they encounter a person or a situation that changes their heart. Their compassion is, is moved in such a way that they move into a whole different area of living. And so compassion will do that. The apostles needed to learn more about compassion. They had some, but not the Jesus kind, and so the Lord schooled them on it. So verse 35, when the day was far spent, his disciples came to him and said, this is a deserted place and already the hour is late. Send them away that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread for they have nothing to eat. 
Now, we are so used to criticizing the apostles of the Lord that we overlook their genuine efforts. I want to give them some credit here because they were, in fact, thinking about the needs of the multitude. The people needed to eat, and recognizing their need, they suggested a dinner break. I could see these guys on the side watching Jesus minister to people and starting a conversation of, hey, do you think Jesus knows what time it is? Uh, These people are going to need to eat. They've come a long way. They're going to be weak and tired. So we had better figure out how uh, these people can eat. Unless you're some kind of high-functioning sociopath, you have compassion. It's part of what it means to be human. It's just that your compassion needs Jesus to really perfect it. And so verse 37, he answered and said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, should we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? Now, Jesus suggested a much different scenario for showing them compassion. The disciples, they they were compassionate. Let's dismiss the people for dinner and then they can come back after dinner. Jesus said, no, we're gonna do something completely different And the first principle of compassion immediately emerged in his answer to them. And it is captured by one word, the very first word Jesus spoke to them when Jesus said, you. Can you imagine that? They come and they say, hey, Lord, we're concerned about the people. They're gonna start to faint if they don't get food pretty soon. So let's send them away so they can go wherever they go. And, you know, I've been to retreats like this, haven't you? We say, hey, time for lunch. There's Del Taco, there's Chipotle. Go wherever you want to eat. And so let's just have the people go. And Jesus looked at them in a way that meant business and said, guys, you. This is gonna involve you. And I don't know if some of them, their hearts sank and others got excited. It's hard to say. Compassion is all about you getting involved personally. Now, that can mean a lot of things. Take the example I used before of needy third world children. You can get involved by supporting one or more of them. You can adopt a third world child. Or you can go on the mission field and become a missionary and work in an orphanage or start an orphanage. Or you might be moved... But nevertheless, do nothing for third world children because you're led by the Holy Spirit to be showing compassion in other ways to other people. There's a lot of suffering in the human race and we can't all do everything or the same thing. Christianity isn't like having a well-rounded portfolio. Some of you who invest... Uh, you know that your financial advisor will say, well, you need to have your money portfolio and some of it in mutual funds and some of it in more aggressive funds and some of it here and some of it there. And so you have a well-rounded portfolio. Sometimes we think of as Christians like that, well, I I need to have a well-rounded, you know, compassion portfolio. I I don't have a kid that I support, so, so let me do that. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing to support third world children. We do it here through Bridge of Hope and many of you do it as well. But you need to let God direct your compassion. We can't all do the same thing and everything. Having said that, there still needs to be you involved showing compassion to someone, somehow, somewhere. This isn't something that we can pass off. Compassion, by definition, is a personal thing that I do that costs me. And so verse 38, he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Now, the second principle Jesus taught them is that God expects you to start meeting the needs you see by marshalling whatever resources you already have. 
This is important because one of the things that kills compassion is the argument, sometimes it's an internal argument, that the needs are so overwhelming, you might as well do nothing. In other words, whatever I do is not gonna change the situation, so why do anything? Just the opposite is always true. The needs are so overwhelming, you need to do something. Think of Jesus and his coming to save us motivated by his compassion. He stepped into our time in order to do something because of the great need of the human race. I hate to refer to it because it's so unbiblical, but there's a great lyric in Andrew Lloyd Webber's rock musical, Jesus Christ Superstar, where Judas is talking to Jesus, and this is what he says. He says, every time I look at you, I don't understand why you let the things you did get so out of hand. You'd have managed better if you'd had it planned. Why'd you choose such a backward time and such a strange land? If you'd come today, you would have reached a whole nation. Israel in 4 BC had no mass communication. And so the argument is, when Jesus came, he couldn't really affect much because of the situation in the first century. No mass communication, no television, no uh, nothing like that. And so think of the massively overwhelming needs of billions of human beings born dead in trespasses and sins from the time of Adam forward. Moved with compassion, Jesus came, but he came at what we would deem the worst possible time and, and met a, a tiny audience. You've seen that you know, thing about how Jesus only walked you know, 30 miles and he didn't do this and he didn't do that. And yet you and I look at this and say, well, wait a minute. Jesus has affected the spiritual destinies of multiplied billions of people. And so Jesus said, Father, I wanna go. I wanna help the human race. And his father said, here's how we're gonna do it. You're gonna talk to a woman at a well. Well, Lord, if I go in 2016, I could get on a cell phone and talk to everybody all at once. And they said, no, no, you're gonna go and talk to a woman, a Samaritan woman at a well and do things like that and this message is going to save people, billions of people, and it does. And so Jesus, uh, it sounds silly to say this, but Jesus got involved. He did what he could do and God multiplied the work. What do you have? It's yours, by the way. Most of the time when discussing material things, we say that everything you have comes from and therefore it belongs to the Lord. However, the apostle Peter, when talking to Ananias and Sapphira about their donation to the Jerusalem church said, while it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your control? So Peter was an advocate of personal property gives us a different take on our possessions. They are ours to distribute as liberally or as frugally as we choose. Make sure you're distributing the portion God puts on your heart and don't fall into the trap of thinking that your portion is somehow insignificant and so it won't make a difference. Verse 39, then he commanded them to make them all sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in ranks in hundreds and in fifties. Seems as though they sat in semicircles on the grass, starting in, a, in rows of 50, then expanding to rows of 100. Think of an amphitheater only without benches, maybe a hillside that was a natural slope with an amphitheater kind of uh, feel. I guess the first thing I'd say about this is that Jesus fully expected God's power to be on display and he got ready for it. 
Nothing had happened yet. He hadn't multiplied anything, but he said, hey, I want all the people to sit down and be ready to receive the five loaves and two fishes. Expectation and readiness go hand in hand. If you expect God to work, you need to be ready, and if you're ready, then God can work. Now, life can become spiritually mundane at home and at work and at school, even in church, to the point you can lose a sense of expectation and therefore you're no longer ready by preparing for God to do something. Let me just say that that's not a good idea. We all fall into that and we think, well, even on a Sunday morning, we go to church, maybe it's burrito Sunday, that'll be a positive thing. Or maybe they're making donuts or maybe waffles, so you know that's a good thing, but those are few and far between. And so the worship team is gonna go up and it's a great worship team and that's fine and then we'll have a prophecy update, the end of the world and all that. And Pastor Gene's gonna say, are you ready for the rapture? And then there'll be a meet and greet and Pastor Gene will try and be funny and he won't be and then he'll, te- he'll teach the Bible and then we'll leave. And I'm serious, I mean, you think, you know, it's church, and stuff, but you know what? Every Sunday, lots of people meet God. Not all of us, but they meet God. He, he takes that bare bones because they are ready, because, they are, because they're expecting, and it all comes together. And so that's what we're talking about. And so Jesus was ready for his father to do something. We need to ask the Lord today what he wants us to do to be ready for him to act. So verse 41, when he had taken the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, blessed and broke the loaves, gave them to his disciples to set before them, and the two fish he divided among them all. Jesus thanked his father, then he kept breaking the loaves and distributing the fish. It just kept coming. It was a miracle, but that doesn't mean we need a miracle to see God do things by his power today. A good example would be Operation Christmas Child. You know, it's that Ministry of Samaritan's Purse that we do every year where you put a shoebox together and then it gets sent out to third world children. Do you know how it started? A guy named Dave Cook, he was a father of four from Wrexham, North Wales, saw the horror of abandoned children in Romanian orphanages on television. He was moved with compassion, so he asked his own friends to help fill a truck with toys and drive it to Romania. Overwhelming response from local people raised $85,000. On December 12, 1990, a convoy of vehicles, including trucks donated by local companies, left for Romania with 17 local volunteers. Among the aid on the convoy were the first gift-filled shoeboxes. On their return, the volunteers vowed to continue that work. Fast forward, Samaritan's Purse gets involved. Since then, Operation Christmas Child has collected and delivered more than 124 million gift-filled shoeboxes to children in more than 150 countries and territories, more than 500,000 volunteers worldwide, more than 100,000 in the United States are involved in collecting and shipping and distributing those shoebox gifts. More than 4.7 million children have participated in The Greatest Journey, a follow-up program that is offered to them The Greatest Journey is implemented through a global church network to help the children learn how to know and then follow Jesus Christ. Is that a miracle? No, it's not. That is the power of God operating through the people of God who are motivated by compassion. One guy moved with compassion and God has turned that into a global ministry saving millions of people. 
Skip ahead to verse 44. Now those who had eaten the loaves were about 5,000 men. 5,000 of them were men, meaning there were women and children who were not counted. The multitude was minimum 5,000, maybe double or even quadruple that. For the sake of easy common core math, let's put the number at 12,000. <laughs> 1,000 for each of the 12 apostles of Jesus to personally serve. Now some of you have waited tables. How long and how hard to wait on 1,000 people seated on the ground during the dinner rush. This is a tall order. Compassion is hands-on. You get personally involved. It's not just about money or support. And that's why a lot of times here at our fellowship, when people come forward with an idea, man, that is your idea. <laughs> and you know what? This is how the church works. We help you do what God has put on your heart. And, and, and it's great. That's, that's the way this works. Uh, and because I'm not moved by that. I, I didn't see that at all. But you did, and so God wants to use you. I wonder if the crowd furthest back thought the food would run out before it got to them. There must have been a rumor that there were only five loaves and two fish. That happens today, does it not, at soup kitchens and rescue missions? Does that mean God isn't able to provide? Well, it can mean a lot of things, but never that God somehow lacks sufficiency or can't help. There's usually a lesson for us when there seems to be a lack and we should seek the Lord to reveal it. And you know, sometimes the lesson is that I need to learn to be content during a time of want. I need to learn how to be abased. I can't always be abounding. Those are also mercies from God, even though we might call them severe mercies. We like to say where God guides, God provides. The lack of provision can be a tell that God isn't leading you. Just because I think something's a great idea and want to do it, and I ask God to help me, doesn't mean it's going to happen. I need to find out what God wants me to be doing. Now back to verse 42. So they all ate and were filled. This means they were glutted. They couldn't eat any more. It reminds us God desires to be generous and that he is somewhat extravagant in his compassion. Would you describe your compassion normally as generous and extravagant? If not, why not? Because your salvation is both generous and extravagant and any ministry that flows from it ought to be the same way. They took up 12 baskets full of fragments and of the fish. Now these baskets were packs carried by each apostle to hold their own provisions. Think about a backpack or we would call it a man purse today probably. <laughs> this episode started with the fact that they were so pressed upon by the people that they didn't have time to eat. And then Jesus said, let's go to a deserted place and eat. And then compassion dictated a change of plans. Then Jesus fed five to 20,000 people without the apostles getting so much as a mouthful. I don't think they ate while they were serving. You know. You ever been to a restaurant where your waiter was eating your food? It's a little weird. Now, I have been tempted before to eat food off of other people's tables. <laughs> Especially if they seem to be clean with their shots, <laughs> current, <laughs> things like that. So you, you leave some sweet potato fries, I mean, you're just asking for it, you know? <laughs> I'll leave you to figure out if I'm serious or not. But anyway, 
This is the consummate principle. This is the pinnacle of Jesus' lesson on compassion. You are here to serve, not to be served. Jesus said, let's go. Let's get our needs met. That didn't happen. Instead, they served thousands of other people before they got served. You know why? Because Jesus didn't come to uh, be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And as our uh, master is, so is the follower. God met their needs by giving them a basket full of leftovers. Are you okay with that? Not only do you have to serve others first, but what you get is leftovers. You were eating off of their table. You know what? That's a great question, but I think you are okay with that because you know that's what it means to be a Christian. We just need to be reminded of it from time to time because unlike Jesus, our compassion can falter and fail. In Lamentations, we're told the Lord's loving kindnesses never cease. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. All today, Jesus is gonna have compassion on you and on every member of the human race. And when you wake up tomorrow, and when they wake up tomorrow, he's going to have that same compassion with the same fervency, with the same moving of his bowels of compassion, and he'll have it forever because he is the Lord Jesus Christ, and you and I just don't. Because of a million different reasons. Our compassion gets beat up. It gets left behind. And that's what Jesus is stirring here this morning. He's stirring up our, he's saying, hey, I'm compassionate and you can be thankful for it. Now, I don't wanna step on anybody's toes, but it's easy for us to get into an us versus them mentality in the world and to think that there's some people that, that we shouldn't have compassion on. I wanna ask you if there's anybody that Jesus doesn't have compassion on. Can you think of a person ever in the history of the world? I'm not saying that everybody goes to heaven. I'm not saying that Jesus doesn't judge people at the end of their life or you know, whether they received him or not, but are you willing to say there's been a few people or a group of people or an entire race of people that Jesus just didn't have compassion on? I think we all know the answer to that. And so we need to have our compassion stirred up. I don't know what that looks like necessarily. I'm not telling you what that looks like. I'm telling you that we need to be Christ-like and care about the salvation of other people before we care about anything else. Because people, maybe they deserve to go to hell, but that's not my call. That's God's business. And I have to remind myself, I really do, because I think I'm such a great person. I have to remind myself that probably if there were categories of people that you should not have compassion on, I would have been in one of those categories and the Lord could have treated me that way. We're all far worse than we think. Black-hearted sinners with roots that go deep into our flesh. The Lord died for us while we were yet sinners. He rose from the dead because he looked upon the human race, the lost human race, as sheep not having a shepherd. And he was the good shepherd who gave his life for the sheep. And so we're just here to stir up your compassion this morning. I don't know what that's gonna look like for you. I don't really care in one sense because that's between you and the Lord. 
I just need to know what it looks like for me.